Beth Geiger, along with her husband Jason, were both early active users of Usenet. On April 18, 1984, Beth logged on at 6.15 p.m. when she was finished cleaning up after her daughter Kate's fifth birthday party. Beth wrote, The party was a success. My vanilla cupcakes were almost as popular as my chocolate ones. Who knew? A few minutes later, Anonymous made one of his first online appearances. He wrote, We don't care about your goddamn f***ing cupcakes. Get off my Usenet, bitch. That night, Jason was unable to sleep. Beth would not stop weeping, and she never went online again, which led to the demise of their marriage. And, as Kate sees it, this is also the reason she remains screwed up to this day. On August 22, 1992, Hurricane Andrew was headed towards the Gulf Coast. Fran Walker lived in Corpus Christi, Texas. On the Weather Channel, Fran learned that Andrew was picking up speed, but was still in Louisiana, far enough from her home to convince her she still had time to run to 7-Eleven and pick up more tasty cakes. She went to her computer and, from her AOL homepage, clicked on the weather chat rooms. Fran typed, what's the deal in Corpus Christi? Can I go outside? Anonymous typed, it's actually sunny. I'm driving in my convertible. Ha ha ha. Fran typed, wow, okay. Then she turned off her computer, grabbed her keys, and walked out of her front door. Fran Walker's body never turned up. In 1995, America Online acquired Slingo, a multiplayer online game that combined chat rooms and bingo. Three dozen Slingo boards accommodated 10 players each, and everyone else who wanted to play waited in the Slingo chat room. On October 7, 1996, Walter Smirziak of a Clearwater, Florida retirement home signed up to play Slingo and was directed to the Slingo chat room. He wrote, Golly, I can't wait to play. Anonymous wrote back immediately, Golly, how old are you? Walter replied, 83, but I still have it. Anonymous replied, Gross, you a geezer, die. Walter Smirziak was known for his quick temper, but he couldn't type his pointed response fast enough. The stroke was faster. Walter remained in a vegetative state for three weeks and, most likely, was not aware of the fact that his family had filled his hospital room with his favorite bingo mementos. In the spring of 2006, Mitchell Henderson, a seventh grader from Rochester, Minnesota, shot himself with a 22 caliber rifle. None of his family members knew why he committed suicide. His schoolmates were shocked by the loss of their friend, so they created a memorial MySpace page. One of his friends posted that Mitchell was a hero to take that shot, to leave us all behind. God, do we wish we could take it back. Mitchell's MySpace memorial caught the attention of MyDeathSpace.org, a website that curated links to MySpace memorial pages. Once My Death Space picked up the page, members of 4chan, a group of message boards that features thousands of anonymous posters, sent hundreds of vulgar pictures and texts flooding onto Mitchell's MySpace memorial page. A couple days later, Anonymous hacked Mitchell's memorial page, replacing his head with a picture of a zombie. And after seeing a note on Mitchell's MySpace page about how he had lost his iPod shortly before his death, Anonymous attached Mitchell's zombie head to photos of dancing iPods. Not content with wreaking havoc online, Anonymous started phoning Mitchell's parents. They'd say, hi, this is Mitchell. I'm at the cemetery. Hi, I've got Mitchell's iPod. 
Hi, I'm Mitchell's ghost. The front door is locked. Can you come down and let me in? It took a year and a half for Anonymous to get bored with Mitchell's parents. Jaron Lanier is one of the pioneers of virtual reality and the Internet. Recently, he's written a manifesto of sorts that argues a need for a radical rethink about the way things have turned out online. The book is called You Are Not a Gadget, and his primary argument seems to be that an Internet designed for anonymous is an Internet that sucks. (laughs) So, Jaron, let's just plunge into this. Tell us why an Internet built for anonymous is so awful. There are times in life where it's good to be anonymous. I think it's good to be able to be anonymous when you vote, for instance. But most times in life, it's not good to be anonymous. And in fact, one of the fundamental rights in the legal system is to face your accuser. Anonymous criticism in particular is a very dangerous thing and and really should, should only happen in those very rare cases where somebody might be in danger. But instead, the Internet encourages anonymity, or at least pseudonymity, a lot of the people who designed the layers of the Internet that got really laid down and kind of buried there so they're hard to change were sort of hippies, let's say, kind of countercultural, and were afraid of being busted for pot and whatnot. <laughs> and there was this countercultural feeling that the man, the police, are always going to, you know, they're about to, to uh, throw open the door and arrest us all. And um, the fantasy was that we were sort of like hiding out with Che in the mountains and we're like these revolutionaries. <laughs> and so there was this sort of uh, promotion of anonymity as this sort of cool way of resisting the man as if, as if that were the big problem in the universe. And that left us with this weird set of ritual designs in which people aren't really themselves. And the problem with that is twofold. One problem is it just brings out the worst in people. A lot of times people will become nasty in an online setting where they can be anonymous in ways that just would never happen otherwise. And, uh, you know, you've probably felt this in yourself. I've certainly felt it in myself where I'll be online and I'll suddenly get into some weird conflict with somebody. And it's, it's like this flaw in our spirits that can be drawn out by this particular design. And why bring out the worst? in oneself just with some stupid software design. So so that's one problem. The other problem is uh, a lot of times when people work together anonymously, they do the most banal and uncreative things. Uh, if you have a bunch of people choosing which articles to read and whatnot, um, it can work to a degree, but the truth is it tends to create a kind of a self-reinforcing um, and pretty narrow-minded orthodoxy. And since this is happening at such a huge scale now where hundreds of millions of people can be influenced by these things, it's uh, really potentially a little scary to me. And it, the anonymous designs really feed that. Well, besides the Tea Party people, I think most folks would agree that trolls and echo chambers are bad things. But in your book, you seem to argue that these problems get amplified when we get to cloud computing. Can you explain why you feel the cloud is raining on your Internet parade? (laughs) Well, look, first of all, cloud computing is a good thing. Cloud computing is a necessary part of human survival at this point. I mean, let's not forget that. Humans entered into this game of inventing technologies in order to survive, but then having to solve problems that are the side effects of those technologies long, long ago. I mean, as Jared Diamond and others have pointed out, ancient civilizations brought about their own collapse, essentially from their technological successes, because they could learn how to deforest their own region or whatever. So the thing about cloud computing is it's the only way that we can gather data from the whole world at once so we can understand the global side effects of whatever we do. It's extremely important. So I'm not dissing the technology. What does bother me is this ideology that's grown up around it, where 
we sort of pretend that the net is the thing that is alive and the people are just incidental. So we take all the creative contributions of people, all of their comments, all their thoughts, their videos, their music, and we mash them up so that it seems as if there's this giant living thing that's talking to us. But, and, but, but, uh, what, but what's doing the destroying here? Is it, is it ideology or design? Ah, well, this is an interesting question. What's the balance between individual choice and responsibility and design as far as who's responsible when things go bad? And the answer is that it takes more than 100% responsibility taking to get anything done for this poor human species of ours. So the analogy I would make is to traffic technology. On the one hand, every individual driver really has to be responsible for not hitting whatever's in front of them. You know, that's no matter how badly designed a road is or whatever, you're responsible not to kill somebody. But on the other hand, it really does make a big difference to design roads well and design street signs well and design traffic laws well. So there's even more than 100% responsibility. And it's exactly like that online. Uh, you, have, you are fully responsible for yourself if you allow yourself to become drawn into some kind of interaction online where you become more extremist than your good nature would really have you be, or if you become mean-spirited towards strangers or other, you know, other people in a way that you really don't want to be, you're fully responsible for that. That's the only way we can think about it. And yet, at the same time, designs really matter, and they really guide people into these failings or not. So the designers are also fully responsible. There's actually more than 100% responsibility that has to be taken. So it's really important to watch out for which sorts of ideas about what it is to be human get stuck in place because of these software designs and the, and the phenomenon of lock-in. And that's one of the reasons why it's so crucial right now to be paying attention, because we're locking in a lot of stuff that could be there for many, many generations. Could you lay out what you mean by that? What is this idea of lock-in? There's a traditional idea in technology that Sometimes a particular element of a design can get stuck in place because too many other designs depend on it. So a good example is train gauges. Once you lay down some tracks of a certain gauge, it's really hard to change it because everybody's designed the rail cars and the tunnels and everything around that, and <laughs> you know you can't undo the whole thing. Um, now, what I'm talking about is actually a little more than that. And I used to use a different word for it. I used to call it idea sedimentation, but I just figured... Oh, yeah, that didn't catch on, did it? <laughs> Yeah, so I just I just kept on calling it the same old lock-in. But basically, what I'm saying is that if ideas, you can't write software without including ideas. Every time you write a piece of software, it expresses a philosophy of what the user is like and how the world works. And it's a it's a very subtle way of doing that. For instance, uh, if you write music software uh, that thinks about all notes as being things that a keyboard player would do, but not the way that, not a singer or a violinist, then it makes all the music that's done through that software sound a little bit more keyboard-like, which is, in fact, something that's happened in the world, and it's one of the things I talk about in the book. Uh, and so if you have ideas embedded in software, and then the software gets locked in place because other software depends on it, kind of like the way train gauges can get locked in place, then you can have these ideas that are artificially amplified and preserved to an incredibly great extent, it's almost like giving a particular idea superpowers versus the other ideas. And if the idea is a good idea, that's okay, but sometimes you can get a stinker. Uh, one example is the idea that it's really good to be anonymous online, that somehow that's a cool thing. And having that become enshrined, I think, is really bad for humanity because it doesn't bring out our best nature. This is actually the one thing I was most looking forward to talk to you about because it does seem that when radio and television were both in their infancy, there was an excitement around them and, a, and, a, and an imagining of you know, vast possibilities of what could be done with these technologies. And then corporations and governments quickly came in and imposed new structures and designs that, that, that had these technologies be used in very specific purposes. But it seems that with the Internet that this is actually impossible. And perhaps that's really naive of me to believe that. But for example, you know, MySpace was, was something I didn't really like. And, you know, a blink later, it's gone. I mean, there, there just doesn't seem to be a permeance here. And I'm wondering why you feel there is. What sucks about the internet lately is because on the one hand, there's this notion that uh, everybody, sh everybody should be anonymous and there should be endless copies of files made so that nobody gets paid and all, all these sorts of ideas that have become common. Anybody who is running a business is being forced 
into sort of this fortress mentality. And a huge number of us, hundreds of millions of people, have accepted these software designs in which representations of us that are crude and crappy are hidden away in the remote uh, secret archives of big companies and are used to route advertisings to us. And we actually live our lives to some degree according to these stupid representations of ourselves. So the thing is that with each passing year, more and more of what, of what happens on computers is controlled within one of a small number of walled gardens. And, you know, weirdly enough, it might seem like a contradiction, but it isn't at all. It's the, the drive for absolute open culture that, that creates precisely this balkanization. The reason Google funds all this Linux stuff and open source browsers and whatever is because it creates this sort of mashed up demonetized world out there to be advertised to. So it actually allows them to centralize power in their servers, which then nobody has access to. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the actual politics works out in precisely the opposite way of the theory behind it. Free culture is another idea that you take issue with in your book. And it seems that you feel both free culture and anonymous are two anti-individual ideas that are not only bad for the future of the Internet, but bad for the future of humanity and creativity as well. C can you explain why? The problem with the stuff we're doing online is that um, if you just make everything into information and mash it up, um, you actually can't get creativity out of it. It comes down in a way to the, the difference between design by committee and the actual functioning way that wisdom over crowd can work. And, and the difference is whether the output is something constructive and creative or not. If you only want to like, choose a correct answer, like the weight of an ox or the number of jelly beans in a jar, then you can get a crowd of people to all submit their guesses and you can get a, a good result. But if you want to invent something, right, you know, ask a new kind of question or invent a new kind of musical instrument or something, if you have a crowd do it, you get designed by committee. You get this kind of dull averaging. And um, there is this this almost mystical quality of the individual perspective, uh, which I don't claim to fully understand, but we have to at least open the space for the possibility that there's something very special there that we shouldn't allow to be subsumed by all these crowd-based designs. And that's something that I think is profoundly um, disturbing to me, that, we're, that, that we've been creating designs where there's this pull of convenience away from respecting that potential for individual magic. Getting rid of anonymity seems to be um, the solution to um, to nothing, but the solution that keeps coming up. Cindy Cohen is the legal director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She's been defending our rights online for decades now, including our right to be anonymous. For her, it's an internet designed not for anonymous that sucks. This is why she thinks it's so important that we pay close attention to how social networks are changing the rules about what's okay to post online and what's okay for companies and governments to do with this information. I think there's a lot of things that social networking does that is really cool. The troubling part of it is that their their business model appears to be a surveillance business model where they, you know, they make money out of getting you to share as much possible um, and they really don't feel a corresponding obligation to protect your information um, or to, you know, in some instances give you very only, really only minimal ability to, to limit you know, how this information gets shared. So I think it is really a big um, issue. I, I get asked this question a lot, like, isn't it true that just this younger generation of people just don't care about privacy anymore? Um, and I think the answer to that is no. I think that, they're, that they do care, but it's about control. People want to be able to control who knows facts about them um, or, you know, things that they say. Um, they, they're perfectly comfortable having their social circle know these kinds of things. They're not comfortable having that also mean that the government knows that kind of information. And um, and they like to have a level of control. And I think that the adjustments that we're seeing with some of the social networking tools, um, I'm hoping, we'll, you know, we'll begin to adjust toward a world in which they really empower users to decide who's, who gets to see what they're sharing about themselves, as opposed to all of this pressure to, to default towards public 
um, that everything you do is public. And by public, remember, I mean, some people think public and it seems kind of abstract and uncertain, but you know, in my, in my world, public means that FBI agent. (laughs) No, no. I I think it's great that you said Facebook has a surveillance business model, because for me, I always call it Stasi (laughs) 2.0, but there are those who feel that this voluntary self-exposure online has to be put in the context of the massive involuntary collection of school, medical, business, and credit, and justice system, and, you know, governmental record-keeping that's going on. So I, I guess maybe moving back away from just the social media th- practice that, that is interesting to talk about, I do kind of wonder what's going on right now with our rights to sort of opt out or be anonymous when it comes to those kind of practices. Yeah, it's very hard. It's it feels I feel a little like we've got a whack-a-mole problem, you know. Every time we think we've got a, an issue that we're talking about on privacy, yet, yet another one comes up. Um and I think that a lot of people are getting fatigued. I think the, you know, the Scott McNeely famous Scott McNeely quote, you know, you have no privacy, get over it. A lot of people are kind of shrugging their shoulders and thinking, well, that's just the way the world is and that's what I have to do. And um I have some sympathy for that. On the other hand, I think that um we're going to begin to start to see some consequences from from that from that world, and you know, I you, you hate to to predict or or even wish for you know something horrible to happen, but I I suspect people are going to start to see the kind of privacy chickens come home to roost. We're going to start to see incidents where the fact that you gave up a little bit of information or that you you know you wanted to tell the world about something at some point in your life is come, comes back to haunt people later and we're, we're just beginning to do that and one of the things that EFF is trying to do is get a handle on what law enforcement is actually doing in this area um, so we've sent a Freedom of Information Act request to a lot of government agencies asking well what are you doing on social media are you prowling around Facebook pretending to be people's friends and are you you know how are you using uh, this information. Um, and so far the government's position publicly is if you tell anybody anything, you've given up your privacy rights entirely. Um, and, um, and that I think is very troubling. There's some case law that they're relying on that's pretty old, that doesn't really, you know, really isn't relevant in this kind of modern era of cloud computing. Um, and we're, we're, this is going to be one of the fights that EFF is, is kind of spoiling for for the next 10 years is to really kind of put this to rest, this idea that if you, you know, if your phone company knows, if your cell phone company knows where you are, that means the government gets to know where you are at all times. Another consequence I'm, I'm interested in is this idea that if you want to be anonymous online, there's almost a, you know, a presumption of criminality when it, when it comes to this. Are, are you seeing this get worse as we sort of hurdle in along here? Well, I think that the basic argument that, you know, if I'm not doing anything wrong, what do I have to hide? Why do I need to be anonymous is one that does seem to have a lot of currency. It has kind of some surface appeal. Um, and it's we see it used especially in, in situations in which the government is claiming that there's a war on terror or, you know, some kind of national security interest um, on the other side. We find that to be a tremendously powerful argument that both the government deploys and people who are kind of apologists for it uh, deploy a lot. Um, and I think it's a very troubling thing because, you know, privacy is one of these things where it is hard at the time that you reveal information, that's not when you feel the consequences of revealing it. So there's always kind of a time gap. I mean, not always, but most of the time there's a time gap between when you do the thing that's a problem and when the result, the consequences of that come come apart. And I think humans in general are very bad at judging risk in those kinds of situations. You know, it's like when your parents, you know, your parents say, you know, don't, don't drink that beer because in 20 years you might, you know, your liver might fail. And, you know, nobody thinks that, you know, nobody does a good job assessing consequences that happen in the future. So um, I think that's one of the problems that people who care about privacy and anonymity really struggle with is the kind of disconnect in people's minds. Um, and that's why I think we may have, it may take a couple of really scary stories. You know, uh, nobody in, you know, kind of my grandparents' generation doesn't get this, right? I mean, anybody who lived through World War II and especially kind of some of the people in, in my extended family who were in Europe during World War II, um, they have a very good understanding of why you might need anonymity and privacy, even if you're not doing anything wrong. Because they've seen it used against, you know, they've seen the, the, the this kind of big record keeping, you know, your reference to the Stasi people from Eastern Europe also get this on a level. But I think kind of modern Americans, we just haven't had as much of that uh, in kind of the our lifetimes. And it may take another horrible, you know, God forbid, you know, nothing nearly so horrible as, as, as you know, a world war. But it, it may take 
bad incidents to kind of wake everybody up to this. What do you feel you can say now then? What, do, you, do you feel that you could say something like, you know, there's an actual danger of anonymity or encryption type technologies being banned? Do you feel that the stakes are dire at this moment in time? Um, I think that they're concerning and that we've got a lot of work to do. I'm, I'm not sure that they're dire just yet. Um, you know, there's a way in which the, I mean, we're just, I think, on the cusp of an era where companies and the government are beginning to be able to use the massive amounts of data that they have on us. Uh, for the longest time, uh, there was a lot of data that theoretically could be used by companies and, and the government um, that the government really wasn't in a position to handle um, and, and companies weren't either. But we're, we're really moving into a world with kind of some of the behavioral advertising um, stuff and other things where we're going to we're going to see much more uses of this information. And, and I think I hope that means that the problems will be more clear. And so people, you know, won't respond to people like me by saying that I'm kind of just, you know, I'm just chicken little, um, but the, you know, they will actually see the consequences. So I think, again, I think we're kind of on the cusp of that when you can see kind of some of the stuff that's going on with behavioral advertising, you know, the government is building a storehouse in the Utah desert that is, I believe, a hundred football fields long and four football fields wide, a huge, huge data storage facility, um, and data processing facility to be able to use all of this information about us that they have been wholesalely collecting now for, you know, at least since, you know, 2001 and in some cases earlier. Um, so, and, and, you know, the technologies like, you know, there's a semantic traffic analyzers, things like the Naris computer and other computers are really getting much better at being able to actually marshal all of this data into um, usable form by the government or private entities. And so I think that that will then begin to filter back to the rest of us. We'll begin to see how this stuff is being used um, and then perhaps be in a position to make some decisions, you know, through our lawmakers or through lawsuits or otherwise about whether we're comfortable with these uses that are being made of all this data about us. Well, you know, the, the social norms piece of this is what seems to be so incredibly fascinating because of the rate the speed of, at which things are in flux and changing. And, you know, you deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis. Are there, is there anything, though, that for you just, like, makes you shake your head? I mean, like that statement, like, oh, no one cares about privacy anymore. I mean, are, are you seeing sort of shifts in attitudes towards anonymity and privacy that, that, that really stand out for you, that, that are sort of as markers? I think that the thing that worries me the most is the kind of shrug your shoulders, give up sense that I'm starting to see from more and more people, people who otherwise would be concerned. Um, you know, I'm starting to see people say, look, it's just over. We have, you know, the pri the forces of privacy have just lost and there's nothing we can do. You're just behind the, 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 you know, the curve of history. That troubles me a lot because I think that it's, this is certainly the kind of situation where it's going to take people getting mad and people standing up and people saying to the Facebooks of the world or the Google of the world, I mean, Google Buzz that just came out yesterday that automatically, you know, makes public the, you know, could, could automatically make public the 10 people who you talk to the most uh, in your Gmail account. I think if people say, this is crazy, and email Google and say, don't do this to me. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to use your product until you fix it. There's a good chance that Google will back down on this. But if people just are like sheep, um, then it won't that there won't be changes. I think people, I think folks tend to discount how important their voices are. And I think in these issues, especially with these companies, I mean, I'm not going to say that when you're going up against the federal government on national security concerns, as I do quite often, that one person's voice is going to matter necessarily. People have to act collectively there and they have to work through their members of Congress and other things. But when it comes to these big companies and, and these kind of products, they're all experimenting with business models right now. And I think that there is a place for people to gather together and tell Google, you know what, this one, you, you screwed up. It's when people give up that they actually have a voice and that their voice can be heard and that it can change things that I, that I worry the most.
Back in the summer of 2006, Lee Siegel was the culture editor for the New Republic. On August 26th, Lee wrote a blog post criticizing Jon Stewart and The Daily Show on the TNR blog. In the comments section, readers voiced their disagreement, disapproval, and disgust with Siegel's position. But Anonymous came to Siegel's defense. He wrote, How angry people get when a powerful critic says he doesn't like their favorite show. Like little babies. Such fragile egos. Siegel accuses Stewart of a pandering plurality, and he gets an onslaught of plural responses from the insecure herd of independent minds. I'm well within Stewart's target group, and I think he's about as funny as a wet towel in a locker room. Siegel is brave, brilliant, and wittier than Stewart will ever be. Take that, you bunch of immature, abusive sheep. A few days later, the New Republic's editor, Franklin Foer, posted an apology admitting that Siegel was, in fact, masquerading as anonymous and shut down his blog. In 2000, Peter Choice, a 40-something-year-old man who DJed on college stations in the Boston area, got a $5,000 check in the mail from a fan who wished to remain anonymous. Choice saw the money as his opportunity to finally get his life on track. He moved into his own apartment and bought a computer. But within a few months, the money was gone. He'd spent it on cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, and sordid sexual escapades. And once again, he could be heard on the airwaves, hinting to his listeners that he could use a donation. In 2008, Mahmoud Samed Al-Mahadin, an 18-year-old member of Anonymous, broke into the lobby of the New York Scientology building. Anonymous, the gang, sees itself as locked in battle with Scientology, the cult. Online, the gang was making a name for itself, posting popular testimonials and Tom Cruise rebuttals on YouTube. But on this October afternoon, Al-Mahadin covered himself with Vaseline, pubic hair, and toenail clippings, and stormed the Times Square Scientology headquarters. Once inside, Al-Mahadin smeared himself on furniture and Scientologists in the lobby. Al-Mahadin was charged with burglary, criminal mischief, and aggravated harassment as hate crimes. The incident was videotaped and posted on YouTube by anonymous gang member Jacob Sparegin, who was subsequently charged with criminal mischief and aggravated assault as well. In 2009, Stacy Flack was very active within the Chicago music scene both in person, as a musician, and online as a forum leader on chicagorockmusic.com. Through the forum, she'd found instruments, bands to join, and, most importantly, friends. One day, Stacy got a message from her friend Betsy, telling her that an anonymous commentator had hacked into her account and was posting offensive messages about her former bandmates and boyfriends on chicagorockmusic.com as Stacy Flack. Stacy created a new profile, the real Stacy Flack, and started posting rebuttals to Stacy Flack's tirades. This led to many, many protracted Stacy said, real Stacy said threads on chicagorockmusic.com. Eventually, the real Stacy Flack wrote Stacy Flack a private message begging for the return of her username. And, in a rare show of humanity, she got her login back.
A few days later, Anonymous wrote her an email. He said, I don't know what I was thinking. I actually go see your band all the time. I think you're really pretty and really talented. I just wanted to talk to you. So tell me the story of the anonymous donor. You'll always remember that story because I think you're jealous. Peter, I've never been jealous that you made the listeners feel so sorry for you that they gave you things. In fact, I've always been and always will be embarrassed for you. Especially because I actually took advice from you on how to get things from listeners. I needed things and I had no source of income at certain points. But I refused to be homeless, so if I needed something badly, I would arrange a rap that would ask. And you must admit, I don't simply go on the air and say, send me money. Some people do, and I, it's awful. The advice I gave to you, I hope you were taking the, right, the correct way. Put some humor in it, make it worth listening to, and it's legit, make it legitimate. Your bike got stolen, you have a radio show. You would be an if you wouldn't use your show. But, you know, being your protege and, and, and trying to learn from you and thinking that this might, might be acceptable, you know, DJ behavior, I, I felt you really, you know, led me down a bad path. I mean, you know, a few months later, after hinting on the air that I was in dire straits and needed money, you know, I'm in, you know, this crazy woman's apartment at, you know, like two in the morning and, you know, and she wants me to read to her because she likes the sound of my voice and then her teeth fall out because she had super glued them back in. <laughs> She couldn't afford to go to the dentist because she was giving me money. It just seemed that you had really set me on the wrong path, and I decided this was bad behavior, and I never did it again. You weren't listening. You should have known there was a danger. I mean, I can't tell you everything. The process of learning is you have to do it. I just put the suggestion in for you. Do you do it the right way? Do you do it the wrong way? That's up to you. I did it the right way. I got things that I didn't even know that I was subtly asking for. I've gotten stairs, I've gotten bicycles, I've gotten cars, I've gotten tickets. Oh, I went to Rome, remember? I got a plane ticket to Rome and back. Dude, I got vacations. And the way I looked at it is I was on the volunteer station and people say, we don't get paid. Well, that's because you're dope. I got it paid. You're the only DJ I've ever met, and I've worked at many, many volunteer stations around the country. You are the only DJ who has had this attitude. Well, thank you. You know, I think that the reason is, if I may blow my own horn, I'm not a hustler. It's funny to say that because I was a teenage prostitute, basically a hustler. But I'm not a hustler. I wasn't BSing people. And that was the key. College radio actually taught me uh, certain survival skills because people will, you can rely on people. There are people that like you. And those are people that don't know you. <laughs> Since I alienated everyone who does know me. I got everything from the show. Well, the kicker is that you got a check for $5,000 from an anonymous donor. C can you maybe focus now and tell the actual story? At this point, I was living with a woman. I'm not heterosexual. I was for too long. She started to keep me. It was a very bad thing. Then I got fired on top of that. There was a series of calamities that happened like in the week. And I did a radio show. And uh, I honestly said, this is my last show. And I never want to make a final show because I didn't want it to be my last show. But I, I had to get a job. So then I'm... In her apartment, I, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I have no money. And then the doorbell rings. I go downstairs, open the door, a, a human being, contact, contact. Uh, but I don't know, he's not the mailman. And I have to sign for something. 
I'll tell you, in my life, I don't sign for many things except bad things. You know, like the collection agency discovered I'm living there. So I take this uh, parcel, which is being delivered by a courier, and I bring it upstairs and I throw it on the heap. Then when she came home that night, she opened it like she did my diaries. She opened up all my stuff. She said, it's a check for $5,000 made out to you. I didn't think the check was real. I thought someone was trying to hurt my feelings, like trying to get me excited and, you know, some cruel trick. In fact, all the next day, until I cashed it at a bank, my heart was racing. It came with a letter. It was one of the most important letters I've ever received. It was a simple, it had two paragraphs. I've been listening to you for many years. Who knew that, right? Uh, I recently came into a lot of money. Uh, I have the same attitude as you do about money. Uh, I went and bought a house and things I need, and now I'm giving the rest away to people that I admire. And the next paragraph was, it was about the Minutemen. That was the connection that he made between him and I. Uh, Maybe he thought he heard it on my show. Weird, because I should have known the Minutemen better than I did. I never heard it before the letter, but now I'll never forget. The song was called Sell or Be Sold. Here's the last part of the song. It's very clear what it's about. It's sell or be sold. It's what you're all told. It's what you all hold. What do you think he means, it's what you all hold? I have no clue. I mean, that could go a a few different ways. But can you talk about the check? What did you do with the money? That check solved my problem. Uh, It was almost the exact amount I needed to get out of a very uh, exploitative situation and uh, move into my own life. The money was an illusion. What really occurred is I came back too. I was under this false impression that I was a loser. The money just, it brought me, it, it brought me back my sense of self. And it, it was like it wasn't even money. It was like a magic potion. I was able to do my show. I mean, I was able to stay on the college station. That's the important thing. And I'm still on college radio. I never found out who he was, and I do still think about it. Now I realize it doesn't matter who he was. Remember in the story Les Miserables, he, this guy that didn't have much money, he knew the guy upstairs was suffering somehow financially, and he would leave him donations, uh, anonymous donations. And he was really upset because that guy found out who he was, then he wanted more. It was weird. He wanted, look, you make the donation because you give someone a gift, not so they will give you a gift back. That's why, like, Christmas is so corrupt. That's the gift, is giving. You know, I actually understand now why he wanted to remain anonymous. subscriber you have called is not available. Please leave a message after the tone. Benjamin Walker, I've read all your emails. I get the sense that you don't understand who I am 
and what we do. I mean, first of all, if I'm going to go on your radio show, I'm going to have to VOIP you through TOR. And that means we're going to have to daisy chain you in, and then we're going to have to use anonymizing proxies and protocol-specific anonymizers. It's a total pain in the ass. And I'm sure you won't even be able to figure out how to turn on the onion router. I mean, dude. You know, we could use public forums, and you could do text-to-speech and voice sense my words on the radio that way, but I checked out your archives, and you already did the voice sense thing with the comic book scanner, and it sounded lame. No offense, but dude, it was lame. Do you need this right now? Oof, dude, we're going to have to do it on the payphone because my rig is down and I don't have a Genius Bar appointment until next Thursday. Your emails are giving me some concerns, though, dude, because I'm getting the sense that you don't understand who I am and who Anonymous is. You know, we are a real gang. We have real gang signs and real gang passwords. But you can't listen to what the mainstream media says about us. We are not terrorists. I mean, I was there in New York City the day Mahmoud Almadan punked the Scientology building in Times Square. And first of all, that's not his real name. Did the media even check that? And what kind of dick takes on a terrorist name? I'll tell you my theory. I think he was actually a plant. You see, they want to make anonymous look stupid. Like we don't know what we're doing. But dude, Vaseline, pubic hair, and toenail. I was also in Vegas when the SWAT team busted Colby Schoolcraft in the middle of the night last October. And dude, ask yourself this. When did it become illegal to own an AK-47 or an Uzi? And in Vegas, dude, Uzis all over the place. Mad Uzis, dude. But I'm sure I don't have to tell you any of this. I mean, you know they're out to get us, which is why we need to be careful. Dude, I shouldn't even be talking to you. I do want to help you out, though, dude, because we are doing good stuff. You know, we are all about making the Internet real. You should check out the Iran board on the site. It would be a great opportunity to go on the radio show and tell people about the good stuff that we do. But I don't think you've thought it through. I mean, I know I'm real, and I don't have to show you my driver's license, but what if I just got my neighbor down the street or some 4chan kid to pretend to be me? I mean, don't take this the wrong way, dude, but you're not smart enough to know the difference. I've fooled FBI agents, the Homeland Security, private detectives, Hollywood directors. I mean, dude, you have no clue. You know, that reminds me, dude. I have to get my driver's license renewed. Well, one of them. But I do hear you can do it at the mall now. Have you, have you heard about this? That sounds totally great, doesn't it? You know, the DMV sucks. On February 11, 2010, on the Why We Protest website, Anonymous started a new forum asking for help translating some Persian he was convinced came from Iran. Can you please translate this sentence into English? Jarian Che Nanjan? Anonymous replied a few hours later. It means, what's going on, my dear mom? On February 12, 2010, Anonymous wrote, Solidarity with our Iranian brothers in their fight against a totalitarian, corrupt, and inhuman regime. Go Iranians." Ten minutes later, Anonymous added, And sisters, of course. On February 13th, Anonymous added a manifesto to the forum. Hello, leaders of Iran. We are anonymous. As the eyes of the entire world hold you under close scrutiny, the eyes of the internet have taken a similar notice of your recent actions. While the governments of the world condemn you for your suppression of human rights, Anonymous has taken a particular interest in your recent attempts to censor the internet. Not only for your own people, but for the citizens of the entire world. Such suppression of dissent cannot go unpunished. By cutting off communication of the Iranian citizens to the rest of the world, you have made it clear to us that the most revered of human rights, the right to free speech, is no longer important to you. 
By seeking to silence the voice of the people, you have perpetuated the anger and rage of your people. Anonymous has therefore made it our mission to see to it that the voice of the Iranian people can be heard around the world. Anonymous will tear down the walls of silence using only the truth, the truth that you are trying so hard to suppress by use of violence, intimidation, and fascist laws. As your people continue to riot and speak out against you, as you continue to beat and shoot your own citizens in the street, as you continue to lie to the face of the entire world, know that the internet is watching and we do not like what we see. We are anonymous, we are legion. We do not forgive, we do not forget. Expect us. A few minutes later, Anonymous replies, this message is off topic. Please post on the Iran Anon board. In the last post on the forum, Anonymous writes, Do you fags have any idea what the Iranian evolution of the 70s actually was? Enjoy your failure. This episode of Too Much Information is called Anonymous. It was written and produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer. It featured Jaron Lanier, Cindy Cohen, Peter Choice, and Anonymous. Special thanks this week to Ethan Zuckerman, Glenn Otis Brown, and Nick Bertozzi, who drew an amazing cartoon for the program. You can see it on the show page at WFMU.org, and this is where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. <laughs>